This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Francis Ford Coppola directed one of the most disturbing movies about the Vietnam War with a title straight out of the book of Revelation. Anybody know it? Apocalypse Now. The movie portrayed this war as crazed mayhem in which objectives are confused and morality is impossible. In one scene, an American officer arrives in the midst of a firefight and uh, shells are exploding everywhere. Machine gun tracers fill the, the air and the soldiers look wide-eyed and desperate. And One of the officers comes up to the group and says, who's in charge here? Nobody answers, which is Coppola's point in the film. It's a scene out of hell with no direction, purpose, or solution. The book of Revelation presents exactly the opposite understanding of the chaos and barbarism of human history. We're going to be looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse today in Revelation 6. Now, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are part of our cultural imagination. Most people don't know it or where it comes from or what it means, but they've heard the language. In fact, if you did a quick internet search, you would discover some things about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You would realize that it's a band, a group of writers, a movie, a novel, a WWF wrestling team from the 80s, a video game, a set of action figures, a toy company, a group of Washington insiders, and one website called the evil telecommunication companies of AT&T, Time Warner, Comcast, and Verizon. They label them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, before we get into chapter six and these four horsemen, I want to recap what we've had so far, because one of the challenges in studying a book to any kind of detail is that you get so close to one particular tree, you lose sight of what the forest looks like. So let's do that. Revelation 1 tells us that this book is a letter of prophecy and an apocalypse. It's all three literary genres. It's a book that shows us things. And chapter 1 introduces us to the glorified, exalted Son of Man who is both velveted and heavy. And he walks among the lampstands, that is the churches. He walks among the churches. He knows Alliance Bible Church inside and out. He sees everything and misses nothing. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes customized messages to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he says, here's what you're good at, here's what you're not good at, repent of the things you're not good at, and then tells them all, the overarching command is Nike, overcome, conquer, be victorious. 
And the first way we do that is to gaze upon him who sits on the throne, chapter 4. In chapter 4, God is presented in all his transcendent glory. The angels bow down before him and cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. He's surrounded by thunder and lightning and 28 heavenly beings, things that keep anyone approaching from getting too close. And around the throne is a vast expanse that appears as a sea of glass, all to distance God from John. God himself is not pictured. Only metaphors are used to describe. It's as if John is saying to us, I I wish I could tell you, but it's indescribable. Here's the best I can do. That scene serves as the setting for chapter 5. In chapter 5, we're told the one who sits on the throne has in his right hand of power a scroll sealed with seven seals. The scroll is not the Lamb's book of life. Rather, it's nothing other than God's purposes for both judgment and salvation. And it's the slitting of the seals that enacts the document. So the drama in chapter 5 is who can approach this unapproachable God of transcendent glory who has in his right hand the scroll that holds all of his purposes for judgment and salvation, who can approach this God and take the scroll from his hand and slit the seals and bring to pass all that's written in it? Who can do this? As John waits breathlessly and agonizingly to see who's found worthy to approach the throne and do all of this, no one is found. No one's worthy. And so he weeps. And he weeps. It's as if all of God's plans and purposes are going to be frustrated. There's no hope. There's no way out. Injustice is going to prevail. Sin is going to triumph. And it's a contradiction of everything John knows of God. And as he weeps, an interpreting elder touches his shoulder and says, Stop crying, John. Stop. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and is able to take the scroll. And John looks, he doesn't see a lion, he sees a slain lamb standing. Jesus, the crucified and resurrected Jesus. He's both the conquering and reigning lion and sacrificial lamb. He's worthy to approach the throne, take the scroll in hand. And as he does so, all of heaven erupts in a symphony of praise. Jesus, the lamb, slits the seals, and what you have is the beginning of the enactment of the scroll, which is what we have in the verses before us today. Before we dive in, I want to provide you with two interpretive tools that will help you understand the book of Revelation. I'm going to bet that after you have these tools in your pocket, you're going to be able to understand more of Revelation than you ever have before. It's a tricky book. The first is you need to understand Revelation is repetitive. It's written in cycles. It's not written linearly. You can't go from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 22 and make a huge timeline. It doesn't work like that. Revelation, true to its nature of being apocalyptic literature, works in cycles. 
So the seven seals, which is what we'll begin to look at today, show us a picture from the first century all the way to the end of the world from one particular camera angle. Then it backs the truck up and it does the same thing from a different camera angle with the seven trumpets. And then it backs the truck up and it does the same thing again with the bowls. Seals the trumpets and the bowls. It's showing you a picture really from the first century all the way to the end of the world from different camera angles. It repeats itself. For example, in chapter 11, there is a picture of final judgment. And then in chapter 20, there's another picture of final judgment. Not because there are two final judgments, but because Revelation is showing us the same thing from a different angle. Revelation 16, 17, the seventh bowl is poured out and the angel cries, it is done. And then in chapter 21, verse 6, we read again, it is done. Did it get done twice? No. Same thing, different angle. That's the first interpretive tool you need to have. It's cyclical. It repeats itself. It's not linear. Second, we need to realize the prophecy in Revelation, like almost all of the prophecy in the Old Testament, allows for multiple fulfillment. We will not understand biblical prophecy until we understand that there are multiple fulfillments to biblical prophecy. There's a partial fulfillment often, and then a later and complete fulfillment of the prophecy. This is especially important when we look at passages like the Four Horsemen. Because there have been lots of godly Christians in lots of centuries who thought the end of the world was nigh upon them because they saw the four horsemen. They thought, here it is, Revelation 6, it's happening, there's war, there's scarcity, there's famine, there's plague, we must be at the end. And I'm sure all the Armageddon books are seeing an uptick in sales because of what we see happening around us today. So what do we make of it? When people say, see, there's war. There's scarcity, there's sickness, there's death. We're at the end. We must be at the end. What do we make of that? Well, we've got two options. We could say everyone could be wrong. We could say everyone who has ever made or ever will dare to identify some current event with Revelation 6, we could say that every one of those have been wrong. And everyone will be wrong except for that one lucky person who really is at the end of the world. But there's another option. Everyone could be right. Wherever we see famine, war, conquest, death, we see the four horsemen of Revelation. In other words, we must allow for multiple, or in this case, almost constant fulfillment of this prophecy. So listen carefully. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are not a one-time occurrence at the end of human history. Instead, they represent the execution of God's judgment and warning from the first century to this very day. Almost all the prophecies of Revelation have multiple fulfillments. It's the same thing with Old Testament prophecy. Let me give you one example of that. Isaiah 40. Isaiah is prophesying about the return of the exiles from Babylon. And he says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the wilderness, a highway for our God. What is Isaiah talking about? Well, the people he's preaching to weren't yet in captivity in Babylon. But he's saying to them, you're going to be carried away. And 
but the Lord is going to come and he's going to deliver you from exile in Babylon. That's what the prophecy meant. But there was a further fulfillment, which is why John the Baptist announces Jesus' ministry with the very same words from Isaiah 40. So it is possible and common for biblical prophecy to have multiple fulfillment. So hopefully this will help you make sense of the book. Revelation is cyclical, it's repetitive, it's not linear. And because it's a prophecy, it has multiple fulfillment. Now let me give you the bottom line for the four horsemen of the apocalypse and then we'll work our way through the particulars. What we have in our passage before us today is military conquest, civil disorder, bloodshed, social and economic breakdown, and death. Welcome to Alliance Bible Church. I'm glad you're here. It's in the book. We need to read it. We need to understand it. It's not a pretty picture. Let's take a closer look at this. I'm not going to belabor my comments because no one wants their preacher to beat a dead horse. Let's look at it together. Chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And who opened the seals? Jesus. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud, in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. The first seal introduces the first horse, a white horse. Throughout the history of the church have been two interpretations of this white horse. Some immediately think of Revelation 19, which is a picture of Jesus' victorious advance, and he's seen there riding a white horse. I don't believe the first horseman of the apocalypse is Jesus for three reasons. The first is that this would make the first horse so incredibly unlike the other three. The second is that what we have is this repetitive command with these horses. It was given to them. It was given power and authority. It was given to them. Jesus is not portrayed in Revelation as one who needs to be given anything. He's already got it. And the third reason is that this horseman, when you line them up side by side, is described actually quite differently than Jesus is in Revelation 19. The second way this white horse has been understood is symbolic of military conquest. Roman generals and even emperors often rode or were pulled by white horses, became symbolic within the Roman Empire, which at this time under Domitian's leadership had become quite a beast, became symbolic of conquest, of victory, not done with any, any kind of courtesy. This is a picture of men and women trampling on others, wreaking havoc in the name of greed and ambition and imperialism. Now, there is remarkable similarity between Revelation 6 and Jesus' words in Matthew 24. There he said, there in the last days, there will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. yes. It's the first horseman of the apocalypse. Verse 3, when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And another horse came out, a fiery red one. 
Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Now, what's the difference between this and the white horse? Well, I think in this, we are given a convincing picture of vigilante war, of civil unrest, even civil war. First century readers of this, the original readers of this, would have perhaps thought of the struggles of the Roman Empire between 68 and 70 AD when they saw four different emperors on the throne. Unheard of throughout Roman history to have four different emperors in such a short span of time occupy the throne. There there was endless civil strife, bloodshed, soldiers getting killed for no good reason, entire armies being wiped out, clans being massacred as people strove for power. Doesn't sound all that much different from the Balkans, does it? Rwanda? Now notice how this is phrased. The horse's rider is given power to take peace from the earth. It's almost as if our world could be a lot worse. Our world could be a lot worse. When I read Romans 1, where God gives people over to ever-increasing wickedness, there's a sense that the worst thing God can do to us is to let us act like ourselves. And he pulls back his hand and he says, okay, if you want to do your heart's desire, go for it. God keeps sinful humanity in check. Through laws, societal pressures, a whole web of cultural forces that make us better than we would be in a completely natural environment. If you don't believe me, read Lord of the Flies sometime. Anybody read Lord of the Flies? It's about us. Throw a bunch of people onto a paradise island and see what happens. Do they create paradise? Do they proliferate paradise? No, they corrupt it. They destroy it. The world doesn't make us bad. We make it bad because it's littered with sinners. And it's God's judgment on us when he lifts some of the divine restraint and lets people act according to their true desires. We behave like animals. We slay each other. Verse 5, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So Jesus slits the third seal, black horse, and its rider is sent riding out, carrying a pair of scales, old school balances. You put weight on both ends to see where it measures out. The picture here is economic breakdown. The prices delineated are 10 to 12 times their normal value. It's like paying 20 bucks for a gallon of gas. How much is milk these days? Was it three bucks? 350? Tells you who does the shopping in our family. I don't know what it is. I have no idea what it is for milk. $37 for a gallon of milk? 
Supply and demand. When supply is low, demand is high, prices skyrocket. This is not necessarily famine, but scarcity. However, things are not as bad as they could be. Look at, do not damage the oil and wine. So they're leaving the olives and the grapes alone. God is still restraining the fury of his full judgment. Why? Well, we'll come to that momentarily. Verse 7, when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So this pale horse or greenish horse, to be specific, comes forth. And this rider is given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by all these various means. I don't think one quarter is literal. I think numbers in Revelation are very symbolic. They're stylized. Again, the fury of God's judgment is restrained because as we progress, we're going to see that this one quarter becomes one third. As we move along, it gets a little more intense. So what do we have in these eight verses? We have warfare. We have civil strife, economic breakdown, disease, death. Why? Because of the scroll which contains God's purposes for judgment and salvation. And the slain lamb standing is enacting the document. That's why we have this. Now, none of this means we shouldn't try to end wars or we shouldn't try to end civil strife or we shouldn't try to end scarcity or sickness. No, we ought to work to end those things. It does mean that human beings will inevitably find ways of subjugating other human beings, of killing, of rampaging, of taking, of being cruel, of controlling. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. This is what Jesus Christ himself taught. Death from sword and famine and plague and nature is inescapable. And when you look at the imagery, you'll notice there is overlap among the four horses, They are not neatly divided up into compartmentalized functions. For example, the fourth horse wields a sword to inflict death. Well, the first two horses also inflict death. These are not four horses coming at separate periods of time. The idea is that these are the things that accompany the onset of God's purposes for judgment and salvation. They happen simultaneously. As the seals are slit, these are the kinds of things that unfold. Thus, the first four seals reflect troubled times that foreshadow the coming consummation of the kingdom. And what does all this mean for us? Let me give you four points of application. First, Christians ought to refrain from making end-of-the-world predictions. We just look silly. When we say the end is coming on September 6, 1994, and when that day comes and goes and we're still here, we change the date. Oh, I meant September 29th, 1994. Book sales spike, and then they plummet, and the author looks just silly and foolish. Avoid being chart Christians, okay? No more charts. You got it? I don't want you to come up and show me a chart that has us between the third and fourth seal. You got us all plotted out. 
Whenever Jesus was asked when the end is coming, he refused to answer the question. Did you know that? Acts chapter 1. The disciples ask him, hey, when's the end coming? Here's what Jesus said. It's not for you to know. In other words, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. It's not for you to know. The Father has set these times and dates by his own authority. It's not for you to know. It's none of your business. There have been Christians in every generation who have thought theirs would be the last generation. And all of them have been wrong. (laughs) All of them. Second, four horsemen are riding forth, will keep riding forth, and have been riding forth for 2,000 years. You look on the news, you turn on the news, you say, hey, look at what's going on in the Middle East. Look at what's going on in our streets. God has unleashed the four horsemen on the world, and I would say to you, you're absolutely correct. You got it. Five years from now, something else happens. You say the four horsemen are loose. I say to you, you know what? You're absolutely right. Nailed it. Now, there likely was an initial fulfillment of this prophecy in John's time, shortly after John's time. And there have been subsequent fulfillments of this prophecy since then. And there will be an intensification of the fulfillment of this prophecy as history marches towards the true end. But in the meantime, God is continually judging us and warning us by wars and scarcity and sickness and death. The reason every generation of Christian thinks they're in the end times is because they are. (laughs) They are. The end times, the last days, started at Pentecost. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon. Go read about it. We've been in the end times for 2,000 years. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew 24. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. These, all these, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Four horsemen have been riding forth for 2,000 years. They're birth pains. They're birth pains. Mothers, you can so ever passionately and eloquently regale us of tales of the pain of childbirth. I know you can. Mild? Huh? Mild? Huh? In an attempt to describe what childbirth is like, my wife once pulled a hair from my head and I said, ouch! Ouch! And she, with a raised voice, said, Time's a million. (laughs) The pain is intense. Jesus is saying, Revelation 6 and all that follows are birth pains. They will be and are currently intense. But 
The pain of childbirth is different than the pain you experience from a broken leg. A broken leg hurts because it's destructive pain. Childbirth pain is productive pain. It's moving towards something beautiful and glorious and joy-filled. Third, let every scene of conquest, every description of war and scarcity, every gruesome picture of death be a warning to us of greater judgment. Who's getting beat up by the horsemen? The short answer is everybody. Everybody. Is it the wayward church? Sure. We see that in Jesus' messages to the churches, right? Revelation 2.5, Jesus says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand. Revelation 2.16, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them, that is, those in the church glomming on to false teaching. I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 2.20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Jesus' words, not mine. That's Jesus speaking. If you don't get your act together, I'm going to come and judge you. So is it the wayward church? Yeah. It's the wayward church. Jesus is going to come and discipline unfaithful churches and unfaithful Christians. Is it... Is the judgment for the unbelieving world? Yeah. He gives them small judgments to foretell a larger judgment. Is the judgment for the faithful church? Yeah, we're going to see that in the next seal. We've got martyrs who've been killed. They've been caught up in the first four seals. They've been caught up in the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Christians don't get a free pass from the evils of the world. We don't get a free pass. For us, it's not a judgment But it is a trial meant to sanctify and purify. Let me get specific. Some people have been and will be infected with coronavirus as a specific judgment from God because of their sinful attitudes and actions. I want to offer a disclaimer there. We can make that statement generally, but not particularly. We don't know why in the mind of God someone is suffering. We dare not go down that road. If you don't believe me, read the book of Job. It doesn't end well. But God does? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. How do we know? Acts 12. Herod, the king, exalted himself by allowing himself to be called a God. Then what happened? Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. God can do that with all those who exalt themselves. Which means we should be amazed that more of our rulers do not drop dead every day because of their arrogance before God and humankind. God's restraint is a great mercy. Some Christians have been and will be infected with coronavirus as a way of calling us to repentance and getting us to realign our lives with the infinite worth of Christ. 
God does send suffering into the life of the believer as a means of weaning them off the pleasures of this world and preparing them for the pleasures of the next. So every horseman that rides forth in terrible but restrained judgment is a messenger of clemency from the king saying, repent, repent, or you too will perish. Overcome, or you too will be judged. Worship the lamb, or you will face his wrath. It's mercy. Last, recognize and rest in the fact that all things are under God's sovereign control. The riders ride forth under whose authority? God's. Who calls for the horsemen? It's all set in motion by Jesus breaking the seals. Not one calamity can happen outside God's purposes and plan. Not one. The catastrophes that issue forth from the scroll issue forth from whose scroll? It's God's scroll. Three of the four horses and riders are explicitly given their power to enact these various judgments. Who gives it to them? God does. So the picture of of destruction and judgment here is not a picture of God vacating the throne. It's exactly the opposite. It's a picture of God reigning from his throne and granting authority for conquest, bloodshed, and judgment. See, chapter 6 and chapter 5 go together. They have to be read together. Chapter 6... Chapter 6 answers the question that's raised by chapter 5. You get done with chapter 5, you've got a question as you read chapter 5 and you look around the world, okay? Chapter 5, we read chapter 5 and it's got all the singing and the praising and God and the Lamb on the throne. And the question you're left with is, if God and the Lamb are, are, are on the throne reigning, why does the world stink? Why is there so much violence and suffering in the world. It's a question you're left with. we got to keep reading. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 answers that question. It's part of God's plan and purposes. And if you read just chapter 6, with all its catastrophes, without chapter 5, you would ask, where is God in this God-forsaken, hellish world? And you need chapter 5. He's reigning He's sovereignly reigning, receiving unceasing worship from the elders and the four living creatures, unending praise and glory. Dennis Johnson, when he preached to his congregation, put it better than I could. He said this, as Christians see societies crumble and collapse, our response should not be terrified alarm as though our security were bound up with a fragile human network of law and order, but anticipation and confidence. The Lamb is now on the throne, with God's plan for history firmly in hand. As you see societies crumble and collapse, is your response one of terrified alarm? I hope your response is one of anticipation. 
and confidence. As you watch the four horsemen ride forth and we see warfare and civil strife and economic breakdown and sickness and death, you get stressed out. You become fearful. Or do you react with anticipation and confidence? This is God's scroll. We should take comfort in God's all-controlling sovereignty. That in a world of apparent chaos and destruction, nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens without divine purpose. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, for a very, very, very long time, it was only you who existed. For trillions and trillions, trillions of years, and a trillion before that, it's just you. You are ultimate reality. And our existence is by pure grace. But our existence is for a purpose. To honor you. To worship you. To live for you. Because everything we are and have originates from you. As believers, bring us back to this when we walk through the hard times that this passage describes. Help us remember the mercy and grace you've extended us so even in the darkest valley, we will be sure to praise you still. What we're experiencing today are birth pains. Under your sovereign control, leading to a glorious end. So I pray you would tether our hopes to your unthwartable plans and purposes. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen.